everybody, and welcome to another episode of the History Harbingers podcast. My name is Theo, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaime, to turn back the clocks to like, take a look at the one and only man of the hour, Genghis Khan, and his Mongol Empire. We'll be taking a look at some of his earlier conquests, actually his first and his last conquests, and it goes into quite a bit of detail regarding his military tactics, and he was quite the interesting man, actually. Now, his first conquest after consolidating the Mongol hordes was that of the invasion of Western Shia. Uh, this took place between the years of 1205 and 1210, with the intensive trying to make it a vassal state to plunder it and to expand uh, his influence. Um, what was actually quite interesting about this was the difficulty with which he had conquering uh, fortified cities, considering the fact that they were nomads, the uh, Mongols were nomads, and therefore were wandering peoples, and they didn't have siege engineers and other abilities to try and um, break down the walls of these fortified cities. Jaime, if you'd like to elaborate. Right, so uh, in this conflict, uh, the main reason for it's actually pretty incredible length, despite the famous Mongol rap, uh, speedness in conquering various different locations, is that all fortified cities had to pretty much be starved out because there was no way to assault them. In this campaign, actually, the Mongols learned of the importance of siege warfare, which would become more important in their conquest of the Jin dynasty. But while there is not much information about this conquest, one thing we know for sure is that the Mongols fared extremely well in open battles against these sedentary people who were not used, like the Mongols, to be on horseback practically since they were little kids, practically since before they knew how to walk. Now, overall, the... Uh, conquest of Western Shia, not too much is known about it. It seems that it's a very mysterious thing throughout history. And what was actually quite ironic about it is that the conquest of Western Shia was both Chinggis Khan's first and his last conquest, which we'll get into as we go later down his life. However, once um, Western Shia was su uh, successfully subjugated, um, he then moved on to uh, newer pastures, we should say, where he went on to conquest uh, what was then the Jin Dynasty in the kind of uh, proto-China region. This went on from the years 1211 to 1234 in total. However, uh, it was only really from 1211 to 1220-ish where that was during Genghis Khan's time, where before that, it, or after that, I should say, was where his successor, Ogdan, um, which was his son, uh, went on and fully subjugated uh, Western Shia afterwards. Um, it was primarily started because the Jin looked down upon the Mongols, or the Jin people looked down upon the Mongols, and as such, the Mongols declared war after refusing to submit to the Jin people. And there's actually quite a bit of interesting details regarding their military tactics, specifically in regard to the Great Wall of China, we should say. Right, I mean, there isn't much more to say about the Great Wall of China, apart from the fact that it was completely useless, broken down in certain areas, and rarely fortified. With the, I mean, they did have um, a couple uh, thousand people defending various outposts in the Great Wall, but the Mongols pretty famously just literally walked around uh, the the um, the Great Wall, right? With uh, Genghis Khan's six uh, sixty thousand strong army, he basically just walked around the Great Wall and then proceeded to the Yehuling Pass, which is. One of, if not the most important battle, or at least confrontation between the two armies in this early part of a conflict with the Jin Dynasty. Specifically in regards to um, this conquest of the Jin Dynasty, 
What was quite interesting in the fact was their retreat tactic, where as a part of their military protocol, they would feign a retreat during combat. And as a part of that, they would leave behind their pillagings or what what they've uh, collected so far. For example, their gold or their cattle, where eventually they would fall back, let other people or let the opposers uh, begin to collect some of those materials and then come and charge back in where they were uh, their opponents were too busy collecting their loot at that point to make a steady retreat and therefore completely annihilated them. And this was a iconic portion of the Mongols' military tactics. Yeah, although other tactics were also used, such as, such as a simple surprise attack at the Wuxia Fortress, uh, just a little a little bit away from the Yehuling Pass, and other things such as encirclements, because... Um, Subutai and Jebe, which were, um, as you'll see during this podcast, the main generals of a Mongol army, they did pull off a Thermopylae and lead through an impassable pass a couple uh, thousand members of the Mongol army to surround the Jin army before beginning their tactics of uh, retreat. And um, this is actually quite interesting, this tactics of retreat, because it is written in various Chinese texts that the Mongols didn't really invent this tactic, or at least the basis for it weren't really invented. Since as back as the Xiongnu in the second century, the Chinese had already recorded the fact that these people were, were capable of just running away if it were needed. They had no sense of honor, only whatever benefited them. And these were very similar to the steppe people we see in the Mongols over 1,000 years later. Now, after the invasion through the Yehuling Pass, um, the Mongols found themselves unable to take any of the fortified cities and consequently went through a retreat and returned after the winter. Um, however, due to Chinese defectors and also their sparing of siege engineers, allowed them to eventually successfully siege Beijing, uh, which kind of goes to demonstrate the adaptability of the Mongols, where uh, this is actually quite interesting, that after raising Beijing to the ground, they allowed certain people they considered productive to live, which specific, uh, specifically were people like physicians, doctors or so, um, engineers and clerical people as well. And this eventually had them uh, led to their success in taking Datong and Beijing, where these people who were spared were major contributors to the Mongols' success overall, where as they went along, they kind of amassed themselves a greater and greater army. Yeah, I think before we finish with the Jin, we also need to talk about the concept of betrayal within the Mongols. Because not only will we see this with the Xi Xia or Western Xia, but we also see this relatively to the Jin. At first, the Mongols tried to siege Beijing, but an epidemic spread through the Mongol ranks and therefore they had to retreat. Not, however, before with uh, after signing a treaty or at least making peace with the Jin Emperor, subjugating the Jin Empire to a certain extent as a vassal state of the Mongol Empire. However, as uh, the Jin Dynasty moved their uh, capital or their court Kaifeng far in the south, right on the border with the Song Dynasty, the Mongols saw this as sort of a, a betrayal, and they immediately returned to siege Beijing, which is the point where they practically raised the whole capital to the ground. Now, after uh, Genghis Khan's successful conquest of the Jin Dynasty, he then went on to the Khwarazmian Empire, which came a little bit later. This was from 1219 to 1221. And we can see, kind of comparatively, we see these conquests getting shorter and shorter as the Mongols begin to grow in power. Now, the story behind the conquest of the Khwarazmian Empire was definitely not a happy one. 
It originally started with Genghis Khan sending merchants to establish trade with Khwarezmia. And after that, the traders were captured and imprisoned uh, with the Khwarezmians citing the idea uh, that they were spies to go spy on their enemies or something of that sort. However, uh, Genghis Khan continued to send ambassadors to the Shah of Khwarezmia to free his men. However, the Shah kills two of the men and humiliates the other two who were sent to Khwarezmia. And the... As we'll uh, kind of see throughout various texts, we can see that the Mongols had a very strict sense of hospitality. And as a part of this, when there are broken rules of hospitality, this is a greatest, greatest offense to the Mongols. And as the rules of hospitality were broken by the Khwarezmian Empire, therefore the Mongols decided to declare war on Khwarezmia, which then led to a series of conquests. Right, so I'm, I'm going to take it a little bit from now on and to take a little bit, a look at the relatively more military aspect of, of this conflict. Because the Mongols did not only just simply use their horse archers, which they were fairly famous for in open battles and to ambush with retreat tactics, they also commonly used diversionary tactics. As Jebe and Jochi, which uh, Jochi was one of the sons of Genghis Khan, led 20,000 men across uh, the Tian Shan Mountains um, to the Fergana Valley to pillage it. It was a very fertile valley. This general region of the Khwarezmian Empire tended to be quite prosperous. And the Khwarezmian Empire thought that this was actually the main force. And so the the son of the, of the Shah, Jalal ad-Din, I believe, actually went to try and intercept them. But while this was happening, two other sons of Genghis Khan led much of the army through um, a separate pass, um, a little bit to the north, the Tungarian Pass, at breakneck speed, and took the city of Otrer in five months, which was very fast for a siege of a fortified city with a garrison of 20,000 compared to the preceding sieges of the Mongols, showing how much they could learn in such a short amount of time. And Otrer was one of the first cities where nobody was spared. The city was raised to the ground, Everybody was killed or enslaved, and this is because it was actually in the city of Ochar that the merchants, they, initially the merchants, were captured and accused of being spies. And so it is important to show how um, the Mongols actually did use terror to try and subjugate a completely and massive new population. But we also need to talk about the very another separate incident with Genghis Khan, where he actually crossed 500 kilometers through the Kizilkum Desert, oasis to oasis, a desert which was thought impassable, much like how Hannibal Barca crossed the Alps with his elephants to surprise Rome. And it, by the time the Khwarezmian Empire had realized that Genghis Khan was behind their lines, he had taken Bukhara, which was not very well defended because it was behind Samarkand, their capital. And he was already sieging Samarkand, the capital of uh, the Khwarezmian Empire, which eventually fell. And the Shah did, in fact, fail to break the siege twice, despite his attempts, due to various different Mongol military tactics, which the most famous of them is the retreat tactic. Now... There was also the Khorasan campaign, which was another aspect of this conquest of uh, the Khwarezmian Empire. And what was kind of interesting about it is that 
even though there were incidents of the Mongol Empire giving no quarter to people, as previously mentioned, there was also a city, specifically uh, Herat, where people they decided to completely give up and they did not want to fight. And after the Mongols took some tribute from the city, they nobody was killed there, which was quite interesting, actually, just to show that the Mongol Empire did not have a one-sided military policy. They were, both in terms of military policy and just generally their adaptability, they were wholly versatile. And just to show the extent to which they were versatile, specifically in regards to their ability to conquer the original population before the conquest was roughly 2.5 million that was the population of Khorasmian empire however afterwards it went down to roughly 200,000 people which is in terms of violence a that is a massacre on a whole other scale of history that is massive unlike anything that is almost ever seen before in history where we don't only see these kinds of massive numbers of people being killed only in recent history right i think i want before we move on to the last conquest talk a little bit about jalal ad-din which was the prince of the khwarezmian empire because he unlike uh, the shah who fled uh, west he fled to india more specifically the punjab region and he was actually because of the mountainous terrain needed to cross uh needed to cross the Himalayas to get into India. He was actually one of the few to win one of the very small military victories against the Mongol Empire, as the very small retinue of Mongols who chased him eventually broke under the Turkic attack of the of Jalal ad-Din at one of the mountain passes, since the Mongol cavalry could not maneuver well inside of his passes. However, Genghis Khan soon followed with around 20,000 men and eventually defeated the won the 10,000 men strong Jalal ad-Din force, despite not actually being able to capture Jalal ad-Din, which would prove to be quite troublesome as he would later take control of the various different lands which the Mongol Empire hadn't taken of the Khwarezmian Empire, most specifically the Western lands, and would cause trouble for some of the descendants of Genghis Khan. Now, after the Mongols were finished with the Khwarezmian Empire, what was actually kind of in, kind of interesting is that Genghis Khan's first and last conquest was with the same group of people. It was, again, Western Shia, up to their old tricks. Now, this final conquest was between 1225 and 1227, and Western Shia had not contributed to the Mongol conquest, specifically in terms of their tribute of men donated to the army. And as such, this was considered a betrayal, so the Mongols invaded again and killed the emperor. And it was after this, or right before the conquest began, actually, that Genghis Khan had developed a fever and did not want to go back to rest. And there are just uh, disputing sources regarding what actually happened to Genghis Khan, which led up to his death. However, the most amusing, in my opinion, is the fact that he had fallen off his horse and as such died of internal damage, uh, which would lead to his untimely demise. Right. I think before uh, we continue with this, we need to state a little bit um, the different cultural changes that Genghis Khan did to his empire, because these were incredibly important in the various communications, because Genghis Khan actually established a writing system, um, a writing system which cannot exactly be seen nowadays since Mongolia adopted the Cyrillic alphabet, not 
too long ago, but he suddenly made most of his nobles literate, which allowed him to basically expand his bureaucracy immensely. He also went against many of the traditions of the old Mongol Empire by dividing his army in different ways and promoting based on merit, which is something that history has shown is very important because by promoting based on merit rather than by who had power, he essentially gained two extremely important generals, Subutai and Jebe, who were the main generals famous for their conquests. I mean, Subutai led a whole reconnaissance campaign through the Middle East and through the Rus areas where he basically defeated a combined coalition of all the Rus, uh, every single state in the, well, nowadays would be more or less what we would consider the European part of Russia. And this meritocracy, I think, is very important to to note down at the very least. Now, even though in modern day Mongolia it was the Cyrillic script that was ended up to be adopted for the writing system, it was originally the Uyghur script which was adopted by Genghis Khan through the original Mongol Empire. And we can still see this uh, Uyghur script, though not essentially in its form that was used in back in, say, the 11th century, but we can still see it specifically in the region of Xinjiang today. Yeah, and another very important thing is that actually Genghis Khan revived to a certain extent the, the Silk Road, despite it not being extremely uh, important under Genghis Khan because they were still conquering Western, in, in the Western direction, uh, as well as in the Southern direction in China and uh, the Middle East and all those regions. Uh, Genghis Khan did improve on the various postal services and did establish a much more bureaucratic system. And before we finish with this, I should we should probably state what happened to the Mongol Empire under Ken, after Genghis Khan's death, because according to to tradition, the the youngest son of the Khan would receive the lands, and uh, the rest of its sons would split the horde, right, the the men itself, and this did not happen. He basically established a system under which there would be a Khan one above everybody else and he divided the land between all of his children so long as they were still faithful and loyal to the khan himself which would uh, happen to be Ogaday after afterwards right so that he genghis khan not only used the basis of the tradition of the uh, various steppe nomad people in order to create an an impenetrable army, well, not impenetrable, uh, a basically an absolutely destructive army which would go around destroying practically everything they attempted to conquer, unless they were in very unfavorable terrain. But at the same time, he was willing to part with some traditions which he considered would hinder uh, his, his empire. After all, he basically had uh, various concerns with what would happen with succession, right? Because if his empire was basically going to splinter again, much like how Alexander the Great's empire splintered right after his death. I think culturally, the Mongol Empire was quite interesting to study, just specifically in terms of, as we mentioned previously, the ideas of hospitality, which we can see where there was almost a friendliness or an outward positive foreign policy, which was displayed by the Mongols. However, uh, upon that being rejected was when they turned to their more aggressive military policy, which we can almost kind of see similarly nowadays in an age of globalization where there's almost a friendly, well, this is debatable, but a certain extent of friendliness extended between countries specifically for the purposes of establishing trade. And with increasing infrastructure, we can see this kind of being 
a, a pattern throughout history where increasing trade, being friendly to other countries, and then resorting to more aggressive military tactics when certain ends are not met is something that is more of a pattern throughout history, which I think is quite interesting. I would like to pull some parallels, some just very curious parallels. They don't really have any relation between Genghis Khan and various other rather Western campaigns in antiquity, because as I did make allusion to the pass of Thermopylae and the crossing of the Alps by Hannibal Barca, the ancient Greek city-states, many of them did have this very similar concept of hospitality. And in Greek mythology, a person uh, who actually failed to meet uh, the, the rules of hospitality would often end up punished by the gods, which is very interesting how these uh, rules of hospitality, which in the case of Genghis Khan, was more due to the poisoning of his father at his uh, wedding, if I remember correctly, uh, by some uh, Turkmen uh, rivals. But it's very curious to see these parallels between actually various different customs and battles in antiquity and the different battles, tactics, and traditions of the Mongol Empire, which we would see over a thousand years later. Anyways, that's all the time we've got for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the History Harbingers podcast, and we'll see you in the next episode.